We're diving into a new series. If you've been uh, journeying with us the last several weeks, uh, we've been walking through life hacks and through the book of James, kind of line by line through the book of James, learning wisdom from the book of James. And I actually had a, uh, a different series that I was going to kind of launch into. People ask me all the time, do you do series, Pastor Mike, or do you walk through the book of the Bible, books of the Bible? How do you teach? What do you do? And my answer is always, yes, we do all those things. And, uh, and so we are launching into a, a shorter series this week that's going to last for the next several weeks. But this series is kind of a response. So, so if you know this about me, I actually write way out ahead. I believe God is present when we plan. Uh, the Holy Spirit doesn't just show up in the moment. The Holy Spirit's there when we pray and we make our plans. And you can plan with God. And then God still has permission to wreck and change the plan as we go. And so uh, this week is an example of God just kind of wrecking and changing the plan. Uh, we're uh, going to jump into a series that I wrote totally different uh, than what we were going to go into. And the series is called Civil War. And when I use the word civil, I want you to air quote the word civil, because by civil, I mean polite. I mean kind. I mean relationally with people we know that sometimes we experience a little tension. And we have to learn as believers how to experience a war and still be civil. And so I'm going to give you some tools over the next couple of weeks with a break for Make It Better in the middle of there of how we as followers of Jesus experience this tension, this relation. How many of you have experienced relational tension this week? All right, almost every hand should be up or you're not honest. How many of you were not honest just there and you experienced relational tension? Yeah, come on now, <laughs> right? We face relational tension all the time and the word of God is clear that we're gonna experience relational tension and Jesus actually talks about this. The scriptures talk about it because we all face relational tension. Now, listen, we're gonna talk about some tools to facing it and the first tool today is a tool called perspective, called perspective. And so to kind of warm us up to this idea of perspective, I'm going to bring uh, Vanessa up here, and she's going to read to you an old poem from the 1800s about perspective, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive in from there. This poem is called Blind Men and the Elephant, a poem by John Godfrey Sachs from the 1860s. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind that each by observation might satisfy his mind. The first approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. God bless me, but the elephant is very like a wall. The second feeling of the tusk cried, ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp to me, tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and fell about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear, said, mm, the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so those men of Indostan 
disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. Thank you, thank you. Ah, it's, what, it's a children's uh, poem, but it's powerful to think about perspective. It's fascinating to me that each of the individuals in the poem were right from their point of view. And oftentimes when we lock into a point of view and we believe we're right, come on now, it can be very, very difficult to talk us off of our position. If you take a look at the landscape, if you turn on the news, if you open, what, Twitter chat and look at the arguments that are happening across our nation and among our friends and our family, so often it's because someone has locked into a perspective and locked into an opinion and they're so sure that they're right that there's no room, no margin, conversation is just out of the window. And instead of conversation, we have confrontation. And confrontation escalates and escalates, and we have rifts, and we have relational decimation. (laughs) It's an interesting thing how we lock in to ideals and we lock into things. I was watching a news report just recently. And it was, uh, it was funny because the news report was, uh, it was talking about something that I had heard before. And you may have heard this before. If you've heard this before, don't ruin it for everyone else, okay? But here's what the news report was doing. It was a woman and she was walking around the street and she was asking people this question. And this is the question she was asking them. She said, she said this, she said, a man and his son had a terrible car accident and they were rushed to the hospital. The man died on the way, but the son was still barely alive. When they arrived, an old gray surgeon was called in to operate. Upon seeing the young boy, the surgeon said, I cannot operate because this is my son. How can this be? Don't answer if you know it. A man and his son are in a car accident. The hospital rushes them over. The man passes away. The son is grievously injured and they rushed him into surgery. The surgeon looks down and says, I can't operate because this is my son. So this woman was interviewing people on the street and person after person was stumped. And they started speculating, maybe father met priest. Maybe, I don't know how it could work. Did he have a stepdad? And then finally someone says, oh, is the surgeon his mother? And what was the point of the, of the exercise? That we get locked into a way of thinking. And we get locked into a perspective. And we start dialing in that the surgeon must have been his father. Some of you are really uncomfortable with that <laughs> illustration. With your own self right now, you're thinking, why didn't I think of that right away? Of course. And some of you are like, it's so obvious. I'm frustrated that someone else didn't think of it right away. What's the conversation about? The conversation's about perspective. And we ourselves sometimes can get so locked in that it is difficult for us to even step back. And if we step back and saw the other perspective, it would be so obvious to us why we're in the tension that we're in. But we're locked in because we only see it one way. So we're launching into this series called The Civil War. And I've been surprised over the last several months how many conversations I've had with some of you, with people regularly who are locked into tension. Marriage is locked into tension. 
relationships and friendships locked in tension. People with work and employers and employees locked in tension. And time after time, conversation after conversation has revolved around this frustration that you've experienced, that I've experienced, that we've both experienced about not being able to get a resolution, but just staying locked in patterns of tension. Some of you with friendships, some of you with work friends, some of you with neighbors, some of you with just other, other people in your peer group, moms and other moms and dads and other dads and don't tell me how to parent my kid. And I know that the Bible says something about being a peacemaker. And so I'm wrestling with this tension of, I'm expected to be a peacemaker. How do I be a peacemaker when I know I'm right and you're wrong? The best way I can be a peacemaker is if you just figure out I'm right. Works for me. So what does the Bible say about this? And what is this question and how do we have a civil war? Romans gives us this fascinating glimpse, Romans chapter 12, verse 18. And we're going to walk through Romans 12, some, some different pieces of that throughout the series, but we're going to dial in on verse 18 today. And this is going to kind of be our theme for the, for the day. But I want you to catch this. This is Paul talking about relational tension. And he says, listen, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Wow. Now that's when you should put on a t-shirt. I haven't seen it on a t-shirt, but you should put that one on a t-shirt. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What a fantastic wording, if it's possible. Because you know what's implied in if it's possible? Sometimes it's not possible. And some of you just need to experience some relief right now and understand that not every tension you're in is gonna be possible for that tension to end in peace in the relationship. Paul understands that, the scripture's okay with that. We understand that there is some impossible scenarios. Some of you have experienced the kind of relational rift that is not going to be possible to be in a peaceful situation with that individual. So we're going to deal with that over the next couple of weeks. But I want to talk a little bit about times when it is possible. And what does it look like when it's possible? Have you ever tried to make peace with someone who doesn't want to make peace with you? Woo! That's a fun one. I've been in that scenario. Can we just be honest? Some of us enjoy tension and don't mind just like, raw the tension. But some of us don't. Some of us just want to kind of get along and make peace and figure it out and do that. And, and it doesn't matter. I'm okay with you being in either one of those camps. I just want you to hear that the scripture encourages us that if it's possible, our job is to live at peace with everybody. But sometimes it's not possible. I'm going to let you in on a little secret because I know it's none of you guys in here. There are some people out there who don't like me. Are you kidding me? but there's people out there that don't like me. I've rubbed people the wrong way from time to time, just like you've rubbed people the wrong way from time to time. And there's people out there who don't like you. Now, it's unimaginable to me, and I get so frustrated because I'm convinced if you just sit down with me for a little while, I'll win you over, and you'll like me. Each of us sometimes would feel that way, right? Just spend some time with me, and I can get you to like me. But there are folks out there who just are not Mike Allison fans. I won't even say Pastor Mike fans. They're just not Mike fans. 
Just like there's some people out there that aren't fans of you. And maybe it has to do with decisions you've had to make. Maybe it has to do with things at work that you've had to do, relational boundaries you've had to put in place. Maybe you couldn't go along for the ride and they expect you to. I'm not sure how that got there, but the reality is we got to acknowledge right up front there's going to be some time, some places where it's not going to be possible. And because of that, it's going to give us perspective on how we handle the relational tension that we walk through. Because sometimes it's not going to make it work. I was thinking about this expectation of trying to make everybody like me, because I have that. And then I was thinking about Jesus. Did Jesus live at peace with everybody? I don't think the cross would have happened <laughs> if he and Caiaphas and the high priest, if they were just fist pumping bros that were cool, there was tension there. Jesus experienced relational tension that it was not possible for him to be at peace with them. Jesus, and he's perfect. Guess who's not perfect? Who has two thumbs and ain't perfect? This guy, all of you. So if you're not perfect, and he was perfect, and he couldn't pull off no relational tension, then let's just immediately get rid of that expectation. We're all gonna experience this. So learning how to manage this is the real deal truth for us to walk through because we're all going to face it. Pastor Mike, did you say I can just write off irritating folks? Sweet. I've been waiting for a pastor to say that forever. Yes, it's my day to finally write them off. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that sometimes no matter what effort you put out, no matter how your heart situation is, no matter what you do, it may not actually be possible to experience peace with everyone. Here's a truth bomb for you though. You can have truth or you can have peace. You can have peace. I may have skipped ahead on you there. I'm sorry. You can have peace about the relationship even without peace in the relationship. Did you catch that? You can have peace about a relationship even if you don't have peace in the relationship. What are you talking about, Pastor Mike? I'm saying you can know that you've done everything within your power to make things right relationally and they haven't received that. And now the onus and the expectation of restoring that relationship is no longer on you and you have peace. You've done what the scriptures ask of you you praying for God's best for their life, you're believing for restoration, but they haven't responded. You try to take Damien out to lunch and he's like, I ain't going to lunch with you. We're not cool like that. You say, how about coffee? He's like, I don't drink coffee anymore. If I know you drink coffee, I don't wanna drink coffee, right? The tension's just building. You're like, can we just have a conversation? I don't like talking to people anymore, right? Can I get your number? I got a new number, whatever it is. And you can say, I've done everything I know how to do to reach out to Damien and say, bro, let's sit down like brothers and let's talk about this thing. And he's like, no. And you go, okay. I have peace about the relationship, even if there's not peace in the relationship. I know my heart is okay. I want God's best for Damien. I'm open to God restoring healing and recovering. Uh, I want that for us, but I can't make that happen because I don't get to control the other person. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just flip a switch in someone every once in a while? 
Just like, all right, God, I'm going to turn on Damien's happy switch again. He's going to give me another chance. I'm going to turn on his forgiveness switch. I'm going to make that work. Damien's wondering why he's sat in the front row right now. <laughs> oh. It's true. Sometimes I'm irrationally convinced that if I just hung out with someone, I could solve every relational problem, but it's just not the case. So the question is, am I off the hook? No, I'm not off the hook. Psalm 34, 14 says it this way. It says, listen, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. My job is to be a pursuer of peace. Your job is to be a pursuer of peace. We have to seek it. If there's some evil in us, we gotta turn from that. But ultimately our job is to pursue the peace. Like Pastor Mike, you don't understand how crazy it is dealing with this person. That's fine. Your job is just to pursue the peace. Control the peace, the peace of the, that you own, which is seeking actual peace. My job is to constantly pursue peace. So what does that look like? Let's get into the scripture here and we'll walk through it. If you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel, I'm gonna get into chapter 24. I'm gonna take you through a somewhat hilarious story about relational tension between a young man at this point still, David, and the king at this point, Saul. And they have experienced a relational rift of epic proportions. As a matter of fact, a spear has been chucked. Now, if you're in a relationship and someone throws a spear at you, you have my permission to create a boundary. <laughs> and we'll talk about boundaries. If someone takes a weapon and flings it at you, you have my permission to create a boundary, but let's talk about this incredible story. I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and I'm just gonna give you a couple of highlights of what's going on here. Saul is the king. He's the first king. He got chosen to be king by God. His main attributes that defined him as king is he's tall and good looking. Those are the two main things he had going for him, and that's how he ended up becoming uh, the king. In his rule, he has had kind of a rocky ride. There were uh, a few moments where he didn't do so well. And one of those moments was kind of an epic moment where he took the role of Samuel the prophet and did something that only a prophet's supposed to do and, uh, and made an offering to God in a way that kind of said, hey, even though I'm not that role, I'm gonna just take the authority and do whatever role I think needs to happen at this moment. And Samuel showed up and said, what are you doing? You're not honoring God. Because of this, you're not gonna be king very much longer and it's going out of your family. So there's some tension there. Then there's this amazing story and we see Goliath in the battle of the Philistines and out of nowhere comes David, this shepherd boy, this musician. Come on now, everyone doesn't like musicians. If you're not a musician, you just don't like musicians unless you're dating or married to a musician. If you are a musician, you think musicians are the greatest. Otherwise, we're all jealous, let's face it. So here's this musician and he's amazing. I mean, he writes half or more than half of the Psalms. He plays the harp. He slays giants. He's also good looking and he's successful in battle. And pretty soon Saul hears women who are singing songs. It's like the top 40 hits of his era. And the new song that everyone is singing is Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Now, if you're the king, 
And this upstart musician, shepherd boy, giant slayer, successful military guy has the heart of not just the people, but the women, come on now, is getting the attention. And suddenly you see he builds and cultivates this great relationship with your son. He asks for permission to marry your, one of your daughters. You give him an impossible task, hoping that he dies trying, only he's successful and exceeds your expectation. And now he's married into your family, befriended your son. The women are singing better songs about him than songs about you. You know you've disappointed God and that the prophet said, your destiny is gonna be forever altered. And here's this good looking dude that everybody loves. And he plays the harp and sings songs on the hill. And you're just like, man, I can't handle that dude anymore. You might chuck a spear at somebody. I'm just saying. So this tension has mounted between David and Saul. And David, being wise enough after one spear chuck to recognize this isn't going well, hears that Jonathan, his friend, the son of Saul, has also had a spear chucked at him for supporting David. Goes, I'm out. Takes his group of of fighters that are his friends, and they scatter and hide from Saul. Saul sees this and goes, oh, it's on now. He thinks he can just get away from me. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel. And it says, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David in, and his men near the crags of the wild goats. Now, I've been here to En Gedi this year. Let me show you a picture of what it looks like here. These are kind of the crags of the wild goats. The goats, they, they walk along these ridges, and there are literally thousands of caves in these hills. And at the base of this, there's a water, a stream of water. And it's actually where the psalmist wrote, as the deer panteth for the water. Because everything looks dry and dead like this, but the deer come down and there's water and there's like a little waterfall and it's cool. And there's a picture of me in there, but there's a whole bunch of other people and you can't really see me. But uh, apparently when you go to the Holy Land, you can't have the place to yourself so you can get good photo ops. And so, <laughs> so I was looking through the pictures for a cool picture of me in the water and it didn't, it didn't work. So I got you this one. But here's what I want you to catch. These are what the caves look like and there's miles of this. And so David, being wise, recognizing that Saul and him got beef. There's a civil war. Only Saul's end of it hasn't been that civil. It's been a little intense. Takes his core group of friends and they head for the hills, literally. They create space and a boundary and they're out there. Saul hears that they've done that and he rallies the troops. 3,000 strong an epic display of power and authority. And they head into the hills and start looking for David to kill him. And this is what it looks like. They're just wandering through this area and they're looking for David. And he's in one of these hills and one of these caves, they believe. Now the story's gonna get pretty funny. Chapter, uh, let's see, 24 verse three, it says, he came to the sheep pens along the way and there was a cave there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, this is hilarious. There's 3,000-something caves up here, okay? They come to this sheep pen, this area where there's a very large cave, and Saul says, hey, nature's calling. I gotta do what kings gotta do sometimes. Now, because he's a king, he's not gonna do his business out there with the men. He needs a little privacy. 
See, if you think the Bible's boring, you just haven't read the stories. They are fascinating. Like a few chapters before, I mean, there's some stuff going on here just amazing, right? Look at how David won his wife. It's hilarious. So here's David hiding in a cave. Of all the 3,000 caves, of all the bars and all the towns and all the cities, in walks Saul, right? And here comes Saul, who is literally hell-bent on killing him. And he's got 3,000 men with him armed to the teeth. But he leaves those men behind so he can walk into one of the caves and take care of some business. He's bringing the newspaper under one arm. (laughs) He walks in. Now, I was trying to figure out, and I know this is hilarious stuff to try to figure out. I'm like, so yeah, there you go, right? So when you walk into a cave to do your business and you're wearing the, the robe and the thing, do you just toss that thing off, or do you like hike that thing up? I'm not sure how that works, but that's really relevant to the story. And because it's relevant to the story, I tried to find out, and I gotta tell you, I couldn't find out. I heard both things. But, uh, but my best guess is he probably just took his robe off and tossed it so he can really get comfortable. Sometimes you can't be restricted. <laughs> Why are you guys laughing? It's just the scripture. I'm trying to tell you what's going on in the scripture. <laughs> It says, David and his men were far back in the cave. So Saul's in there. Verse four, it says, the men said, hey, this is the Lord. The day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I'm gonna give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is why the robe is very significant. Is he wearing the robe? I don't know. He's doing his business. The robe's in the room. David cuts off a corner of the robe. Why else is the robe significant? Well, you got to remember, Saul's the king. And so his robe would be a expression of his authority. It would probably be a kingly priestly color, a kingly color. It would be significant as an outward sign that he is a somebody. He's not just one of these 3,000 men. And so to approach this outer garment of authority and take a piece of it is is a very uh, aggressive and assertive thing for David to do. It's funny to think about Saul in this state of vulnerability. But his people, David's people say, hey, I can't believe our luck. Can you believe the hand of God? And isn't it always the case It's like a chance in a thousand year intention with someone and you're like, I just got to go to the store and they're at the store at the same time. You're like, I just got to go to the mall and you park and you're like, I think that's their car, (laughs) right? (laughs) You're just in the movies and you're like, I got to use the restroom. You go to the restroom and they're in the restroom. Just those chance encounters when you're in tension with someone and it's unresolved and you got to make a decision. How are you going to interact in this moment? Now, David's men are like, yes, He's vulnerable. There's 3,000 men down there that are loyal to him. But if he's out of the picture, there's no reason for them to be loyal. This is the perfect attempt to, or opportunity to attempt to assassinate him. He's in the most vulnerable, basically, position you can be in. And David creeps up to him unnoticed. Now, I don't know how much further I need to go to this, but you are really concentrating if this happens. If it's unnoticed. And he takes a piece of the symbol of his authority and headship. 
Verse five, it says, afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of the robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed or lift my hand against him for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, look at this verse seven, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul and Saul left the cave and went on his way. This is gonna come up a little bit later, but I want you to catch this right here. David does not take the cheap shot even though the voices of his friends are like, oh, you got him. They're vulnerable, they're exposed. You're at work. And the person that you have beef with is a couple minutes late and you see the boss and here's your moment. Hey, have you seen Tim over here? Have you seen Steve? Have you seen, I've been looking for him all morning and he's not here. It's your moment to take the cheap shot. It's your moment to undermine them. It's your moment to, you don't have to, but you could. And the voices behind him that are loyal to him are saying, take the shot, take the shot, take the shot, win the battle, embarrass the guy, take the power away from them. David doesn't do it. Let's face it. When you're in a civil war with someone, generally you know where the cheap shots are. You know where the cheap shots are. You know that person well enough to know how to take a cheap shot. You know all you have to bring up is, well, you're just like this because of, and it's on. And they're not gonna be rational anymore. You could say, oh, you're just, you got this from your mother. Whoo! You wanna see a battle go over the hill? Oh, you just, you're just not smart enough. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, you just don't know the thing. Whatever the cheap shot is, you know that you will have an opportunity to take the shot. David has an opportunity to take the shot. He doesn't take it. Verse eight, look what happens. We'll move through this kind of quickly. It says, then David went out of the cave and called to Saul. My Lord, the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed down. He, he, he showed deference and prostrated himself with his face on the ground. And he said to Saul, why do you listen to when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, he gives him respect. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. Now understand and recognize that I am not guilty of wrongdoing or of rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me for my hand will not touch you. And as the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. I love this. David acknowledges Saul's authority. He recognizes and gives him respect and deference. And unlike Saul's approach to get 3,000 men and go to battle, he actually leads with submission, with a heart that says, I actually would rather give my strength to lift you up. I would rather take the, the uh, 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 perspective of how can I be a blessing to you. And then he addresses the conflict from Saul's perspective. He says, you think that I've done this to you. You've listened to voices. I have some of your perspective and people have been talking in your ear about me. Let me address that with truth. I haven't done those things and I wouldn't do those things. And that's not the behavior that would define me. I haven't wronged you. Verse 14, against who has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? 
May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. And may he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. And I love this. David also asked for justice. He doesn't just defer, defer, defer. He says, hey, I want you to know I've seen this from your side and I see why you're responding this way and that you don't have a picture of the truth. And so now what I'm hoping for is some actual justice between us. It's okay to be honest in a conflict, not just tell a person. (laughs) Come on. Some of us think peacemaking is just telling the other person what they want to hear so that they're not angry anymore. Some of us think peacemaking and having a civil war and having someone else's perspective is, I don't really agree with you. I'll leave Charlie alone. I pick on Charlie a lot. I'll pick on Jake. I don't really agree with you, Jake, but I'll just tell you I do agree with you so you knock it off and we can be friends again, right? And we think, we think that that's peacemaking, but that's not what David does here. He stays in the truth. He says, I'm, I'm just, what am I? You're chasing like a dog or a flea. I'm not, I'm not large as you've made me out to be. I'm not taking more positional authority than, I, than I'm entitled to take. I haven't done these things. And I'm praying that between you, me, and Jesus, we recognize that I haven't done those things and that you turn from this path that you're on and stop trying to attack me the way that you have. He's honest. Verse 16, look at what happens. When David finished saying this, Saul asked him, is that your voice, David, my son? Look at the difference. And he wept aloud. You're more righteous than I, he said. You've treated me well, but I've treated you badly. You've just now told me of the good that you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands and you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you for the way you've treated me today and know that I will surely be king and that the king, I know that, I, that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord, you won't cut off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. You see, Saul receives this rebuke in a way that allows him to repent and to change. Now, does it take? That's another story. We're gonna go further into the story later. But he's able to overcome this incredible tension by not taking the cheap shot, not listening to the voices in the back of his head and to the the guys egging him on to take the shot. He confronts with truth and honesty and demonstrates respect and submission in the relationship, not in a way that diminishes him, but in a way that promotes life in Saul. And Saul hears that and it changes something in him and he repents. 22, so David gave his oath to Saul and then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. I love this little picture. David's like, yeah, we're cool now, but I ain't going home with you. Boundaries, we're gonna talk a lot about boundaries, right? We're cool now. We said the words we needed to say. We're fist pumping, but I ain't living under your roof again right now because it hasn't been safe because spears have been chucked. So boundaries are okay. You can have a civil war and end with boundaries. (laughs) He does confront in love and he does establish peace in the relationship though. Let's go back to the Romans passage. Chapter 12, verse 18. We talked about if it's possible, I wanna talk about as far as it depends on you. And we're we're gonna wrap things up here in just a minute. But I wanna talk about how much of this depends on you. Where does your responsibility end? What is your responsibility? What's the part of dealing with a civil war that you actually have to take on? What does that look like? Because the thing is, we always have a choice when there's a rift in relationship. We don't get to choose or control the other person, but who do we get to choose to control? This one. 
So there's some stuff that defends, depends on us. And uh, there's a powerful thing when we choose peace. There's a powerful thing when we take a step. There's a powerful thing when we go further than we normally would to establish the peace. And I'm gonna give you just one key and then I'm gonna give you four steps on how that works. But the one key, what it looks like to go a step further and as far as it is in your hands to do that, one of the keys, we've been talking about perspective, but here's the word I want you to catch today. The key is the word empathy. Empathy. Empathy is the ability to understand and share the feelings of another person. The step that you can take in a civil war to have perspective is to decide to display some empathy. To say, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna take a look at this from your perspective before I move, before I go forward, before I take action. I'm gonna try to discover what this looks like from your side. You know what's powerful about this? This is really a picture of the gospel. This is really a picture of why Jesus had to come and be fully man so that we could understand that he felt and experienced all the things we felt and experienced. That is the picture of empathy. To say, listen, I'm gonna put myself in your shoes. I'm gonna live here on this broken planet among these broken people in a flesh body. I'm gonna be God in a bod so that I can relate with you. That's what empathy is. It's taking a step to see the situation from the other person's perspective and giving concern to the way they feel about it. I'm gonna tell you an old parable. It's an old story about a young student and a professor. It says this, it says, a young student was one day walking with his professor who was commonly called the student's friend. And from his kindness, to, or called the student's friend from his kindness to those who he waited on with his instructions. As they went along, they saw lying on the path a pair of old shoes, which they supposed belonged to a poor man who was employed in a field close by and who had nearly finished his day's work. The student turned to the professor and said, let's play a trick on this man. We'll hide his shoes and then we'll conceal ourselves behind the bushes and we'll wait to see his perplexity when he cannot find them. My friend, answered the professor, we should never amuse ourselves at the expense of the poor, but you are rich and you may give yourself a much greater pleasure by means of this poor man. Instead, put a coin into each of his shoes and then we'll hide ourselves and watch how the discovery affects him. The student did so, and they both placed themselves behind the bushes close by, and the poor man soon finished his work. He came across the field to the path where he had left his coat and his shoes. While putting on his coat, he slipped his foot into one of the shoes, but feeling something hard, he stopped down to feel what it was, and he found the coin. Astonishment and wonder were seen upon his countenance. He gazed upon the coin. He turned it around. He looked at it again and again. He then looked and turned on all sides, but there was no person anywhere to be seen. So he put the money into his pocket and proceeded to put on the other shoe. But to his surprise, it was doubled and he found another coin. His feelings overcame him and he fell upon his knees. He looked up to the heaven and he uttered aloud a fervent thanksgiving in which he spoke of his wife who was sick and his children who were without bread, whom this timely bounty for some unknown hand would save him from perishing. The student stood there deeply affected. His eyes were filled with tears now, said the professor, are you not much better pleased than if you had played your intended trick? The youth replied, you have taught me a lesson which I will never 
forget. Perspective. Seeing things from somebody else's shoes. Early on, this kid just thought, oh, it'd be funny. But he had an opportunity to see the actual depth of impact he could have in that other person. You know, it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this in, in kind of a sportsy term. Now, I'm not a good golfer. Let me just get that on the table, perspective. But this is a putter. It's actually uh, an interesting putter. It's kind of a gimmicky, ginormous rings of Saturn putter. It guarantees that when I hit the ball, like with a hockey stick, it will go flying past the hole. <laughs> That's why I paid $100 for it on eBay. But I was thinking about golfers, right? And I don't know if you ever watched golf. If you have, I'm sorry. I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Some of you love watching golf. I enjoy watching the highlights. <laughs> but there's something about good golfers. And good golfers do something that I don't always do. When they're about to make a putt, they have the ball on the ground and they line up the putt and they get behind the ball and you see this like scene, right? And they get low when they look and they wanna, they're, they're looking for the curves in the path to the hole. They're trying to determine what path will get them to success. But great golfers don't just do that. Some of you know, some of you don't because you're not great golfers. What great golfers do is they take a minute and they walk all the way around to the other side of the hole. And it seems like a fruitless walk. And they get way over here. And they realize something that from this vantage point, from this view, they can see turns in the ground that they couldn't see from the other vantage point. From that perspective, there was no way they could see it. They had to walk all the way to the other side to see how to have success. Now, for some of us, the effort of that walk seems like an insurmountable effort. It seems like a waste of time. We're comfortable just kneeling down going, yeah, I got this. And we lock in. And sometimes we nail the putt because, you know, everybody gets lucky sometimes. And sometimes we whiff and we have no idea why. And we experience the same kind of things in our relationships and in our tension. And one of the tools and one of the steps to doing that is taking the effort as much as it is possible as so far as it matters with you. What part are you owning? I'm gonna take the long walk. This is a walk. I'm gonna walk over to your side. Damien, I don't think, I think you're crazy, but I'm gonna walk over to your side. And maybe he is crazy, but maybe he got crazy because he was looking at it from this side and he didn't have the information I had on my side and I didn't have the information he had on his side. And just getting over to his side is the first step towards bringing relational sensitivity and closeness to where I can begin to have some empathy and it might be the first step in cracking the seal off of this civil war that we've been locked in. I just take a second and go, oh, I see how you got there from your side. I may not agree still, but I, I see how you got there. I wasn't even aware that I had done that or that you had seen that or that you didn't hear the thing that I heard and didn't have the data that I had. I didn't take, I, I just taking a moment to hear it and see it from your side was a game changer for me. I'm gonna give you four keys because it's gotta be practical so you can do it. And then we're gonna pray and then we're gonna just start on this journey. Four keys, simple like this, keys to having empathy in a civil war. First key, simple, no cheap shots. No cheap shots, guys. Some of you are cheap shot artists. 
Knock it off. We get it. We get it. You're good at it. You're smart. You have quick wit. You have a sharp tongue. You're clever. You remember everything and you're able to drudge up the thing I did a hundred years ago and remember it perfectly. And I have no defense, no cheap shots, no cheap shots. Let me say it one more time. No cheap shots. If you're in a civil war with somebody, it is inevitable. They will be vulnerable at some point and you will have a decision to make. They will walk into the cave just thinking it's a normal thing, not realizing you are right there with the opportunity to pounce. Don't take the cheap shot. And as much as it's possible to live at peace with everyone. Second is simple. Be careful whose advice you take. Be careful. Some of you, you get into a conflict and you go fishing for advice. And that's okay. There's godly counsel and wisdom and people out there that you can talk to that are safe in environments that are safe. But listen, you know when you're just trying to ramp up, come on, enough people to agree with you so you can do the thing you want to do, like write them off or take the cheap shot. And David was in the cave. And you got to think those guys aren't, they want to go home. They're in hiding. They want to go back to their families. They have an agenda. They're there supporting David, but they just want this to be over. They don't care if David gets peace. They want to be done. You have some friends that are sick and tired of hearing about your situation. And they may love you, but they may also just want it to be done. And they may inadvertently give you advice that doesn't line up with the heart of God or the word of God. So just be careful. Be careful who you listen to. Sometimes it's family. Oh, man. Can we just talk about how hard it is when our family's giving us bad advice? That could be hard. If I had, I probably, I can't even think of a situation where I've been talking to a couple who's in a marriage tension and the family's weighed in and it's been helpful. No offense, families. <laughs> right? Now, families can give support and they can lend stuff, but they're going to take causes and take sides. Their instinct is going to become to your defense. They're going to give you whatever strength they have to give you, and that's important, and that's part of it. Just be careful whose advice you actually take. Take their strength, but maybe don't take their advice unless it lines up, come on, with the word and the heart of God. I'm almost there. Take the time and walk all the way around. Walk all the way around. Don't take the shot until you walked all the way around. Don't walk into the conflict until you've walked all the way around. You're not ready yet. Some of you are like, I'm in tension. Let's go. Tyson, get over here. We're going to talk this out right now. And you haven't taken any second to give any thought to why Tyson might be frustrated or why he might be stuck or what might be there. You haven't got any time, any of that effort. None of that's gone into the process yet. You're just in tension and you want to solve it. Or you're just in tension and you're done. You're just done doesn't even matter. Like this much tension and you're like, whoop, you're out. You just tore their name out of your address. But I guess that's an old thing. You just deleted their contact information off your phone. You blocked their face chat account. You're just, they're out, right? You're like, snap this. I'm not snapping you anymore, right? And they're just out. This is what is possible for you. This is what empathy requires. Empathy requires Go for the walk. Take the steps. Head on over to their side. I know it hurts. And go, okay. It's possible. 
that maybe they heard or saw something different. Maybe I was having a bad day and I didn't think about them having a bad day. It, it is actually possible that I wasn't the only person having a bad day at that moment, that this wasn't their best moment, that maybe I wouldn't wanna be judged by my not best moment, just like I'm judging them by their not best moment. It's possible and you can get there, but you gotta walk all the way over. Last one is pretty easy. Just communicate the truth and love. Have the tough conversation. Have the actual conversations. Man, this is so, so important and it's so easy to blow off. I was just in tension with someone a couple weeks ago. I heard that they had said something and it wasn't true and I care about them and respect them and it, it just hurt my heart that they had said it. And it was easy for me to just blow it off and be like, ah, I called them and they didn't call me back and I was like, okay, I did my effort. I said, no, 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 no. We have to have the hard conversation. Why? Because I wanna live at peace with them because I'm not gonna be able to be at peace with them unless I have the hard conversation. Did it go well? Went okay. But I can be at peace now. I can have peace about the relationship even if I don't have peace in the relationship. And I left the door open to having peace in the relationship because I had the honest conversation. I didn't just tell him what Jake wanted to hear so that he'd be done and we could create a fake peace. But I had the honest conversation. And that's it. That's the keys. Those are the four keys. No cheap shots. Be careful whose advice you take. Take some time to walk all the way around and communicate the truth in love. And that is the key to starting, come on now, a civil war, the end of a civil war. Would you stand with me? I'm gonna pray for you. I know this is really practical and pragmatic today. It's a little, a little different than what we did last week, but, but every, every week isn't gonna be the same. But I want you to have these tools. Here's why I want you to have these tools. Because I'm a believer that if you get these things into your heart, if the people who say that they love Jesus start loving people the way Jesus loved them, it will actually begin to transform the relationships that you have in your life and actually begin to impact people. And we might see breakthrough where there's been brokenness because we got our hearts right and our minds right. And we were willing to take the long walk towards healing and restoration. I want that for you. I want that for, I want that for your marriage. I want that for your friendships. I want that for your relationships. I want that for you at work. Why? Because then you get to be more like Jesus. And the more you're like Jesus, the more you get to bring him into those environments, the more transformation and change that begins to happen in those places. And can you imagine if there was just a thing that was known about you and it was that you were a peacemaker and that you were kind and that you were loving, what if that was the thing that was known about this church, that it was filled with people who took this kind of approach to things? Can you imagine the reputation of God spreading because of that? Can you imagine the impact that that would have? Can you imagine the people you know who need to hear this and the lives that could be changed? So God, this morning, I'm just grateful. I'm humbled and I, I, it's just a privilege to get to talk about your heart, but it's just, man, it's just so hard sometimes to do it. And I pray for those of us struggling to do it. I pray for those right now who right now are in the middle of a civil war and they've been listening to bad advice. Gosh, sometimes the own advice in their head is the bad advice <laughs> and they got to silence that advice. They... God, haven't had the courage or the strength to take the long walk, to go to the place where they can see it from the other person's perspective. They haven't been willing to have the hard talk. Maybe they've run from the talk or avoided it. And God, we know we can't live at peace with everyone, but as much as it is in our hands, 
Give us the courage to do it the way you've designed us to. Teach us about empathy. Teach us about the heart of a God who could come into the earth and humble himself and live as a man just to be able to tell us, I can relate to you. Give us a heart to relate to one another as well. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Homework this week, take the long walk with somebody. Just try to see it from their perspective. You may not be able to get all the way to the conversation, but take the walk. Come back next week. We'll keep diving in. God bless you. Have an awesome week in the Lord.